0: He is risen. risen. Here's the thing. In many churches and for many people, Easter is so last week. It's just like, put that behind us. We did that. It was fun. But Easter, for many people, the idea of celebrating resurrection feels like it's put in the rearview mirror. That Easter's the day of the year that you maybe dress up. Maybe you get some extra candy. I know some people eat Peeps, which I still don't understand. <laughs> maybe you have a big meal. Many of you came and we celebrated at the Olympia Ballroom together. But then after Easter Sunday happens and you're done with the celebration piece of that, then you Monday hits and you go back to work. There's work and life and school and chores and rain, and you swap out the decor around the house for the next holiday. And with that, Easter closes and it just fades into memory. Did you know that in the ancient Christian tradition, according to the church calendar, Easter isn't just a day, but a season? Easter tide? And just as Actually, in a greater way, as Lent was these 40 days leading up to Easter, Easter tide involves the 50 days that then follows toward Pentecost. So seven weeks of Easter. Could you handle seven weeks of Easter? It's a reminder to us that resurrection isn't reserved for the Olympia ballroom for a couple hours. And that the truth of resurrection ripples into today. Like right here and right now, resurrection still matters. Which is why for the next seven weeks leading up to the day of Pentecost, we as a church, we're not going to pack up and move on though we could, but we had the discussion even among our preaching team about the value that there would be for us to not just shift gears and fly by resurrection. We spent these weeks talking about Jesus' last words on the cross, and then we said, he is risen, and then rather than just shifting and moving on, that there's value in us sitting in, talking about, looking at biblically, what is happening as Jesus is back from the dead. In the Gospels, there's a handful of encounters with Jesus' disciples after Easter morning. I think they're really helpful for us to engage resurrection ourselves. So here's our new series, Exploring Resurrection. I want to set the scene real quick, and then we're going to dive into the first resurrection encounter tonight. Here's Here's some Eastertide reminders for us. Easter lasts longer than we typically practice, and I've alluded to that already, but I want to underline that. Easter matters today. The Bible tells us we are a resurrection people. The resurrection is not off to the side. It is central to our life and our community together. And as many people have noted, our society knows how to anticipate an event but we don't know how to sustain an event. We like the build-up. We like to anticipate but then we quickly move on to the next thing. Pastor Rich Velotus explained it this way. He says, one of the most unfortunate realities in our culture is how easily we move from one thing to the next. In a matter of days or even hours, our focus and attention are diverted with surprising speed. Our society has been conditioned to live in a perpetual state of inattention. Perpetual state of inattention. What would it look like as a church if we sustained Easter? What if we had a longer sustained attention? What if we lived as though we could sustain by the power of God's Spirit the resurrection story? Also, another idea as we head into this series is that resurrection is more disorienting than we often admit, and this needs to be named as we look at these stories from the Gospels. Encountering resurrection or experiencing resurrection is more complex than just singing a few hymns, wearing some dress clothes, and consuming a nice Easter meal. And this is where I hope this series will hopefully be helpful for us all these next few weeks. Because yes, he is risen. He is risen indeed. The tomb is empty. It's cause for celebration and joy. But if you read the Gospels, when the resurrection happens, they're confused. So here are the scenes that you look at when you see the resurrection encounters of Jesus. I put them together here. You find disciples weeping confused, troubled, doubting, fearful, and wrestling with their failure. Happy Resurrection! We don't put this on our Easter eggs. But when those early disciples encountered the empty tomb and they encountered the risen Jesus, it wasn't with trumpeted fanfare. You have these people... Weeping, confused, troubled, doubting, fearful, failure. What does resurrection speak to that? Because I think we need to know that and engage that. Does does what Jesus accomplished actually have an ability to deal with that stuff too? And, And then thirdly, Easter is quietly subversive. And again, I love celebrations. I still think we as a church want to continue to learn how to celebrate and be be celebratory. And I love the shouts, and even last week and Easter morning, the shouts of victory and rehearsing the scripture of victory. But here's again what we find with the early Jesus followers. As resurrection becomes unleashed, and it hit them in surprising ways, uh, one writer, Ron Rolheiser, he comments that Easter is more quiet than loud and it's more whispering than trumpet shouts. He says it's the time for spring and resurrection and I doubt there will be any resurrection trumpets loud enough to blast the narcissistic hell out of us. Mostly resurrection is about susurrection, whispering. God whispers a lot. And there are all kinds of secrets to be heard. Spring and Easter is a good season for looking and listening. I had never heard the word of susurrection before, so I had to look it up. Susurrection means whispering against authority. And when resurrection hits, there's all sorts of surprises and subversion. And actually, Easter shows up and resurrection shows up, and there's more whispering happening than just yells and shouts of victory as we're going to talk about even today. When they found the empty tomb, you know what their first thought was? Grave robbers. They weren't thinking that Jesus was coming back from the dead. They were surprised. They were disoriented. There was a subversive thing happening on that day. resurrection begins with whispers because the risen Jesus shows up and people don't recognize him. That's the thing. Who is that? And then they realize who it is. So with that in mind, I want us to explore what might resurrection say to us, to you, to our community, as we explore resurrection, as we engage the resurrection encounters of Jesus. So if you have a Bible, open with me tonight to the Gospel of John, John chapter 20. The first resurrection exploration is with a woman named Mary. This is John chapter 20, verse 1. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. While it was still dark, saw and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head not lying with the other linen cloth but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So John the author tells us that this is the first day of the week. It's Sunday. But it's not just any Sunday. This is Easter Sunday morning. There's there's some Genesis overtones in the way that John tells the story. It's the first day of the week. This is day one in God's new world. So Mary Magdalene, she shows up in the wee hours of the dark She has a very clear plan in mind. And John, as the author, doesn't get into all the details of what she's there to do, but the other gospel writers do, namely Mark. Mark tells us that the goal of her mourning was to bring spices to anoint the dead body of Jesus. She wanted to show her own devotion. Some have speculated why she was there bringing anointing spices, because if you read the story... When Jesus was first laid in the tomb, Nicodemus actually had taken care of that already. So maybe it was part devotion, maybe it was partly because she didn't think that Nicodemus had done it fully right, but in any case, she was there to visit the tomb to see a dead body, to show devotion to Jesus. And things don't go according to plan, right? She shows up and things don't go according to schedule. First of all, the stone is rolled away. Like, that's not normal. It should have been sealed. And then she informs the disciples, and we're told that, that Peter and John, the disciple that Jesus loves, he keeps telling us that he's the one that Jesus loves. Peter and John have a foot race to the tomb. John tells us that he won the foot race. Verse 4, he wants us to know that he got there first. John went in. Peter came huffing and puffing later. And they explore the scene. And it wasn't just that the stone was out of place. There's no body in the tomb. There's no corpse in the grave. And then the, the grave clothes were there. And the face cloth was folded and placed where his head should be so they walk into the scene and there's a moved stone an empty tomb and folded laundry put back in place something's not right here grave robbers don't fold clothes when they steal bodies most humans don't fold clothes jesus does jesus folds his clothes and puts it back in place but still as John tells the story, like everyone's scratching their head like what is happening here? What is going on? Things are out of place, but they don't know yet. So verse 10, the disciples leave. But not everyone leaves. Who stays? Mary. Verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, before we go deeper into the story, into the scene, I think it's important for us to stop and again to recognize what's going on here. Don't be so quick to get to the Jesus part. Don't get to the resurrection resolution yet. Here's what's amazing to me on this first Easter morning is that Mary and the disciples and the women that are there with Mary, they find an empty tomb. And we all say, hallelujah, the tomb is empty. They see an empty tomb. And they don't reach the same conclusions that we do. Many of us cite the empty tomb as proof for Jesus' resurrection. For them, the empty tomb just compounded their grief. For them, the empty tomb meant someone monkeyed with the grave and someone took his dead body and someone desecrated his, his tomb. In this case, the empty tomb is not met with whoops of joy. The empty tomb is met with Mary weeping. This is Resurrection Sunday for the first disciples. Tears. Weeping. As Easter breaks out, we're confronted with the tears of Mary. Easter tears. Now may be an appropriate time to ask, like, who's Mary anyway? Who is she? So Her name is Mary. There are lots of Marys in the New Testament. This is Mary Magdalene. Mary from the town of Magdala, which is a fishing village on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. She's mentioned 12 times in the Gospels. She's mentioned more than some of the apostles are mentioned. She's not just some random background character. Mary is someone who deeply, deeply loves Jesus. And most believe it's because of her history with Jesus. John doesn't give us her background. Luke does. This is Luke chapter 8, verse 1. This is earlier on in the ministry of Jesus. It says, "...and the twelve were with him, and also some woman who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities... Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out. Mary's past, Mary's story was filled with lots of trauma and pain. Here she's described as the one who had seven demons driven out of her by Dr. Luke is the one telling us this. Some other people cite certain texts to conclude that Mary had a sexually promiscuous past. But as a woman who had been demon-possessed and then set free, she was someone who is seen as an outcast by society. No doubt she had scars of shame and rejection. No doubt that her particular story made finding a place in a religious scene difficult. It made her social standing out of whack. Jesus loved her. Jesus had healed her. Jesus had delivered her from the chains of oppression and had invited her to find a way to live again, to have hope again, to find freedom again, to breathe again, to have a place of belonging again. And more than her past, and more than her labels, and more than the nicknames and the shame, more than a sketchy history, more than the scars that she bore in her soul. Jesus loved her, and Jesus welcomed her into his company. Now do you get why she's crying? Jesus had literally turned her life right side up again. And that's why her tears fall. Jesus was literally her everything her freedom, her belonging, her healing, her friend, her hope in the world. But now he's dead. And the hope, this glimmer of hope that she once had has now been ripped out and declared dead. And not only is he dead, but now he can't even find his body and his, his grave is desecrated. And she just wanted to come and honor him one last time to maybe touch him one more time and to honor him and wrap his body properly for burial. An act of dignity and respect to the one who had changed her life, but even that now, this final act of grieving and blessing has been taken away from her. So happy Easter, resurrection morning, the scene is Mary weeping outside the tomb. And maybe some of you can relate, probably not in all of the specifics of Mary's story, but maybe in the emotions of it. Maybe you've tasted those tears. Maybe you know that feeling like in the gut of your stomach. Maybe in the dashing of hopes and dreams, in the pain of grief, of loss, of, of dashed expectations for what life would be like now. the hollow pit in your stomach that won't let up and the tears that fall without words. I would venture to guess that some people, this is the most relatable part of the Easter story. This is why Mary is standing and weeping outside of the tomb. The tomb is empty. For us, that's good news. For Mary, it was tragic. But I want you to hear this. If, if tears are part of your story too, tears don't disqualify you from the resurrection story. In fact, your tears are welcomed in the resurrection story. So what happens? Well, first there's the angels. Two angels to be specific. Verse 12. The two angels show up. Like, well, what? When did the angels get there? John didn't see them. Peter didn't see them. Maybe it's because they were too busy focusing on who won the foot race. I don't know. But all of a sudden, there are these two angels that are there. And they have a question for Mary. It's a great first day of the week question. Verse 13, Woman, why are you weeping? And she, she answers the question, She says, they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. Jesus was in here yesterday, and now he's gone. Again, she's focused on finding the body. I want to I honor him and embalm him and anoint him. All of which sets up this then scene for the main event, this this resurrection encounter, because no sooner do those words leave her mouth than she turns and she finds Jesus standing right next to her. Now, as we come to find out, she doesn't know it's Jesus. But it's Jesus. And after the angels ask her their question, Jesus has his own questions. Verse 15. To this woman in her tears, Jesus says, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? At this point, does Mary understand the bodily resurrection of Jesus? No. Does Mary understand the full theological significance of the empty tomb? No, not at all. Again, that's why she's weeping. That's why she's grieving. But I think it's really helpful for us to watch. What does the risen Jesus do to this woman who is weeping outside of his tomb? How does Jesus, how does the resurrected risen Lord Jesus handle tears of disappointment? Let's talk about what Jesus does for a few minutes here. It's the first day of the week. It's still morning. Mary is weeping in the garden. What does Jesus do to engage with her tears? It's different than maybe we would expect. Because it's not with fireworks. He's risen! It's not with trumpets of celebration. And it's not with the rebuke for her to stop being emotional, to stop crying and get over it. I want you to watch resurrection at work. A few things. Jesus meets her tears with questions. First, the angel, and then Jesus. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And again, uh, how he says that, again, maybe I'm reading into this because it may have sounded differently, but I think to me it sounds like there's like a playful curiosity in Jesus' approach. Like, like, does he really not know why she's crying? Like, duh, he, I'm sure he knows why she's crying. D- does he really not know who she's seeking? I'm pretty sure Jesus knew exactly why she was crying and exactly. Whom she was seeking. Jesus asks questions that he knows the answers to. Because they're not questions for his sake, but for hers. And I think there's a tenderness here. Because it's not a jolt. (laughs) Jesus meets her in her tears with tenderness. And might I add, I find it to be just like what God does. If you've ever read through the biblical story. Do you realize that God loves to ask human beings questions a lot? I just, here's my greatest hits of the divine questions. You go back to Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin. Right? Cosmic rebellion happens in the garden. God comes and says, Where are you? Like he doesn't know where they are. Genesis 16. You know who that's asked to? Nope. Where have you come from and where are you going? Hagar. It's Hagar. Yeah, it's Hagar who's running away from Sarai. What is your name? God says that to Jacob in Genesis while he's wrestling with the angel. This one who couldn't tell the truth and has been a liar his whole life. He asks him what his name is. Exodus 4, God asks a question to Moses, who's got a staff in his hand. He says, what is that in your hand? Before he tells him to throw it down and becomes a serpent. When Elijah is having a pity party, running away from the prophets, after having won against the prophets of Baal, God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? God asks a question to Job. He asked a question to Jonah. And most all of those situations, these are like big, pivotal situations, they could have received like a truth bomb or a blast of anger or a a blow to put somebody in their place. But here's what I notice about God in the scriptures, as with the resurrected Jesus here, that he's tender toward the vulnerable. And I think of this line from the prophet Isaiah, well maybe I, yeah, nope, sorry, I didn't even put it in there. That's my fault. Isaiah 42:3. There's this phrase, Isaiah 42:3, it says, "A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. <coughs> a bruised reed he will not break and a f- faintly burning wick he will not quench which speaks to the tenderness of Jesus the tenderness of God's heart toward those who are on the edge of being snuffed out and broken I wonder what Jesus would say to you in your tears I wonder what tender questions he may ask you. Second thing you see Jesus doing, he meets her tears with questions, and then Jesus speaks her name. Verse 15, Mary, she's frantically searching in the garden. She's talking to Jesus, doesn't know she's talking to Jesus. And she's asking these desperate questions to someone that she supposes to be the gardener. And then things shift in one word. Verse 16, this is what Jesus says to her. Mary. Jesus calls her by name. And again, in my own curiosity, I'm like, how did he say that to her? Was it Mary? Mary. Mary. Like, What was the tone that he used? I don't know. I'll have to ask someday. But when she hears her name in a very familiar voice, she instantly figures out who this is and what's going on. And this random, frantic conversation with the gardener flips. Mary, she says, Rabboni, my teacher, rabbi, my my rabbi. And the weeping changes Again, here's what I love about the way that the resurrected Jesus handles grief in the garden. I love the way he handles Mary's tears. He's tender in his questions to her. And instead of rebuking her tears, he offers himself in a personal, relational way his voice, her name. It brings me back to what Jesus said back in John chapter 10. John 10, verse 3, Jesus identifies himself as the good shepherd, and then he has this whole conversation about the shepherd and the sheep. John 10, 3, it says the, the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Verse 27, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And you have this like fulfillment of John 10 as the good shepherd deals with his sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I call my sheep by name and lead them out. They hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. Mary's in the garden, overcome with grief, disoriented in her tears, and says, Mary, and she's like, oh, this is Jesus. I know that voice. He knows me. I know him. He's the good shepherd. Mary's tears are met with a name. Deep, relational connection that stands at the heart of the resurrected life. When Jesus says he comes offering life abundantly, yes, it is for eternity, but this is the offer now to you, friends. Even in your tears, the offer from the Good Shepherd is that you would be known by name. And you would hear his voice and have relationship with him at that level that could turn your tears into something greater and better. One last thing. One last thing before we close. Because, yeah, there are questions that are offered by Jesus and the naming of, by Jesus, but also Jesus appears as the unexpected gardener. This is something that John is very excited to capture for us. Jesus, the resurrected Lord, appears to his friend Mary, and who does she think he is at first? Oh, it's the gardener. There's so much meaning, I think, packed into that little misunderstanding. Again, it's the first day of the week. It brings us back to Genesis. It's creation story language. And the setting, both in Genesis and here in John, the setting is a garden. So yeah, maybe Mary was mistaken about the identity of Jesus, thinking that's the dude that keeps the garden. But there's meaning in her saying, I think it could be the gardener. Because maybe she's not wrong. Maybe that's one of the best resurrection images that we could ever conceive of. Let, Let me give it to you this way. Adam and Eve were made as image bearers in Genesis, placed in a garden. They were commissioned by God to tend and keep God's good world. That's gardening language tend and keep, shamar and abad, tend and keep. Also, it's priestly language of worship and serve. Adam and Eve were were worshiping gardeners in the Garden of Eden, priests in the Garden Temple, but they didn't tend the garden, right? They sinned, they rebelled, they failed, they sinned, And as a result, all of creation unravels in sin, rebellion, and death. All humanity forced out of the garden ever since humanity has lived east of Eden. But now, on the first day of the week, a new creation story has emerged in a garden with a second Adam a second Adam and a woman in the garden where there's now new creation and new life and the outbreaking of a new Eden through the work of Jesus. Maybe Mary's case of mistaken identity wasn't too far off. There's a writer, Holly Wells, who says, you will see and you will not be wrong when you call him gardener because this is the stuff of resurrection. It's actually a gardening story with a new gardener at work. What do gardeners do? Anyone? Any gardeners in the house? Till the soil? Cultivate? Pull weeds? Plant? Sweat? Maintain? Make things beautiful. Preserve. Preserve. Diligently serve. Plant. Water. Wait. Protect. Protect. Yeah. Gardeners do this work of tilling and prepping, fertilizing, taking poo, working it into the ground, and they weed and they water and they wait just like the gardener does in our lives, who takes the tears and the pain and uses it as fertilizer, takes the junk of life, the poop of the world, and works it into the ground so that something more beautiful can grow. If you come to know Jesus as the gardener of your soul, you won't be too far off the risen gardener is at work. Another author says, a gardener's work is earthy and intimate. Gardeners have their hands in the humus. We are humans from the humus. Conductors and lawyers and bankers are concerned with abstract and impersonal things like tickets, laws, and money. But gardeners handle living things with living hands. Jesus is not afraid to get his hands dirty in the humus of humanity that Jesus is a gardener with a good heart and a green thumb should change your perspective on life. I promise you that your life is not so messed up that Jesus can't nurture you into a flourishing state. This is the good news. Take a leap of faith and believe it. Trust the gardener. Stay in his garden, and Jesus will grow new life out of the husk of your old life. Please stay in the garden. You see, in this exchange, in this moment, Mary discovers what life is like on the first day of the week. Yeah, there's grief and pain and disorientation and heartache and the shattering of dreams. But as she encounters the risen gardener, the risen Jesus, there is now hope. And it doesn't mean that all the hurt magically goes away. But he offers the personal touch of his presence. He offers some tender questions. He offers a name. He offers to do gardening work. And some of you may even be weeping today. Mary says, they've taken away my Lord. You may feel like they've taken away my fill-in-the-blank. They've taken away my everything. Some of us are grieving, though, like it's the sixth day of the week and not the first day of the week. Some of us are grieving like the tomb is sealed and there's no hope. And it's to you this evening that Jesus would ask you some questions. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? What's underneath your tears? And Jesus offers to call you by name. There's a God who wants to know why you're weeping and then he wants to offer you himself. That he knows, he understands, that he's walked through it too, and he wants to walk with you This week I came across a little snippet of a poem from Gerard Manley Hopkins. And the phrase he used was, let him Easter in us. And I don't think I've ever heard Easter used as a verb before. But now I have, and I love it. And I'm going to use it all the time. Let him Easter in us. Resurrection beyond once a year, beyond a Hallmark holiday. Like with Mary, I pray that he would Easter in us. Resurrection life. That would meet us in our tears with more of his presence. She doesn't even realize that he's there. Some of us don't realize that either. Oftentimes in resurrection, he goes unnoticed. And maybe he's asking you questions. Maybe he's speaking your name. Respond to him in faith. May he Easter in us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this gathering of people, my church, family, and friends. Lord, before we just up and be done with Easter, God, there's some stories you want us to sit in and like Mary there are some tears you need to engage with us. So, Lord, I pray that we would be open to what it means to explore resurrection life with you now. Yes, when we die, but also, what does the good news mean here and now? What does it mean for us to weep with the gardener? May you tend the soil of our hearts, Lord Jesus. May you tend the soil of this church. May there be new creation life that springs up among us in this city, in this county, for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.